Hi, I'm Lania Knight, and I'm going to be reading tonight from my novel in progress, Remnant. And um, I'm going to read what is now the first chapter. Um, but what I've been working on uh, at Vermont Studio Center is restructuring my entire book. So for about two years, I had a chapter that I thought was the first chapter, uh, and another chapter I thought was the second chapter. Um, and when I sent the manuscript out to a couple of friends, I got a lot of feedback from one reader in particular who I really trust. She has about five books out, and she said, you know, you're not giving us some really crucial information until pretty late in the novel, and uh, there's some things it would help to know earlier on, and so I kind of looked at where in my book... Um, so it's a science fiction novel set in the Midwest after years of drought, um, so I kind of looked at how I had structured it and where that bit of information comes in that the reader really knows how to link the time of the book to the time that we're in right now. So I basically have done a total restructure. And what used to be chapter nine, uh, which was um, in the second half of the book, is now chapter one. And what used to be chapter six is now chapter three, and those are both uh, have a lot of information, um, do a lot of world building. Um, and one of the things I've done since being here, so first I restructured the book and fortunately um, got it done just in time so that I could give my new first chapter to Madison Smart Bell. And I wrote him a letter along with the chapter and I said, you know, this chapter I'm sending you is only recently chapter one, and I'm not sure if it's doing the work of what a first chapter needs to do, and could you help me look at it in that light and and see what I'm doing with world building, and do I have enough hooks in for the reader? Um, and he just did a great job of uh, doing a few line edits, but then really helping me see, yeah, you're doing world building here, and you've accomplished a lot there. and. You know, yeah, we have some questions, but you want the reader to have some questions. Um, so, so that's what I'm going to read tonight. Um, we'll get introduced to some major, major characters in the book, um, and we'll hear sort of off stage about who I used to think as the central character, and and she is still the central character, but she's central in a way that everyone else is sort of wondering about her, and you get an introduction via other characters before she actually comes on the stage herself. Um, so, so that's pretty exciting to me. This will be the first time for me to read this chapter to an audience. Um, Madison was the first person to actually read it, other than me. Um, so that was uh, really scary, um, and I appreciated uh, how kind he was. Um, so it's uh, upping, upping the ante a little bit to read it tonight um, uh, to an audience of uh, people that I've come to know over the last two weeks, come to know and love. Um, but I think they have some expectations, and I hope that my reading meets those expectations. And, and I just, you know, I also see reading as a form of editing, so this is one last kind of pass for me to really check, is it really doing what I want it to do? Um, and uh, I think that's it. Hi, everyone. Um, so I'm going to read the first chapter of a new no novel that I'm working on. Um, and it's a YA crossover science fiction. So there'll be a few words that are unfamiliar. Um, <clears throat> but here goes. 
The matress believes she's being prepped for surgery. The ancient genitor has become careless in her appearance in the last months. Her most recent scalp graft tilts sideways on her skull, dirty and uncombed. Her stained blouse gapes open, revealing a scarred line where her left breast once hung. As she reclines in her metal chair made comfortable with curves, low back support, and sanitized cushions, number 47 watches her. A liquid mix of chemicals drips through an IV into the matress's arm. Her head is relaxed, her eyes wandering off to the marshy expanse between her compound and the bombed out remains of St. Louis. She raises her hand to her throat, IV tubing tangled about her wrist, and uses her gnarled finger to cover the fistula nestled between her collarbones. A pity, her mechanized voice croaks out, a pity we couldn't save them. Her eyes flutter closed and her hand falls to her side as if exhausted at the effort of speaking. She uses the word we not to include number 47, but to indicate her multiple selves, the long gone parts of her who tried to save her favorite tree, her deformed child, her long ago lover. Number 47 monitors the matrix heart rate and blood pressure. He's heard the stories before, the regrets. She babbles less now that the chemical changes in her brain have become more permanent. The readings on the panel look normal, but only because number 47 has recalibrated them to appear so. It's particularly cruel to rob the matrix of speech, but he's grown tired of hearing her tales, her nostalgia for the days when she could walk freely in the river bottom collecting specimens for her father's lab. When the matrix was a young girl, it was during a warm afternoon spent alone in the river bottom that she first thought of a plan to outlive the disasters, the jet stream splitting apart, the flooding in the east that did nothing to relieve the ongoing drought in the Midwest, the seasonal shift from cold to hot and back again that had become unrecognizable. What are you doing here, Rombozoid? Her lips, always dry, are a slightly darker shade of gray than her cheeks. When she speaks, number 47 clicks his tongue, thinking this will soothe her. Instead, her eyes open wide in alarm. She holds her hand away from her neck a moment, taking a few breaths through the hole in her throat. Didn't I tell you to work in the jewel box? Her pupils, small pinpoints within the milky brown irises, watch him. I'm checking your vital signs, he says. He almost calls her Melda. When she uses the name Rhombozoid, she has sunk so deep into the past that she doesn't realize the man she thinks she's talking to is dead. At one time, he could have been lulled into playing this game with her. Rhombozoid was the nickname she gave his genitor, Yi Lu, when he designed his first rhombozoidal gestation chamber. Yi Lu, the son of Chinese immigrants, imported to Easton Louis to work for Melda's father. Yi Lu, the son who learned English quickly. The son who, because his parents expected it, excelled in every subject at Easton Louis Preparatory School. When number 47 was attempting to repair several broken gesta packs, he came across a familiar face in the manual. It was Yi Lu, Yi Lu his bio encrypted in the endnotes. Number 47 dug deeper, searching for information about his genitor. Instead, he found file after file about Melda's family, the wealth her father amassed, which he used to acquire land and more land. Before the disasters, Melda's father bought up cheap, cheap tracts of blighted western Illinois. When the federal government could no longer afford to maintain its national parks, the highest bidder, of course, was Melda's father. 
Soon after, he imported cheap Chinese engineers and architects to work on designs for a mounded industrial complex in Easton Louis, while hundreds of Chinese workers built a school to educate their children and a tiny one-story city to house themselves, fanning out from the maze of ancient burial grounds, landfills, highways, and overpasses connecting the old river bridges to St. Louis. Last night, number 47 met with a soldier and a migan in a dismal, dusty apartment to discuss plans. It could have been the same apartment where Yi Lu lived with his parents more than a century ago. Number 47 touches lights on the wall screen, one of the few fully operational panels remaining in the compound. It's all going so quickly. Neither he nor the other signs can keep up with the repairs. He's considered sabotaging the gestapacks and incubators the sanitizers on the main floor below, but it's all breaking down of its own accord. Number 47 need not bother, which is fine. He'd rather focus on preparing the matrix for her next phase, though granted not exactly the phase she and Jano and the other rhombos think is coming. And number 47 is still trying to figure out a way to get the polyploid giant they call Hybron out of the way. If you can build the chamber, we'll survive. The matrix mechanized voice is a deep croaking sound. Yes, number 47 says. Is she ready? It takes number 47 a moment to understand her question. The wanderings of her thoughts are so unpredictable that he never knows if she's talking about here and now or an event that occurred a century ago. Not yet, he says. There is a bit of a problem. The heart monitor registers the increase in the matrix pulse. Oh? He looks away from the wall screen, aware that she'll become agitated if he doesn't make eye contact. Someone from the outside was trying to rescue the girl, he says, inflecting his voice ever so slightly. Who would want to escape this? I can't imagine, number 47 says, smiling. Don't you worry now. He turns back to the wall screen. I'm sure it's all under control. He really has no idea what's going on with the remnant, the matrix last propagate. He hopes the girl escapes the farm with the migan. Someone needs to survive this failed experiment. Number 47 continues scanning the matrix vital signs. He's never actually seen a final harvest. The last success occurred just after he was gestated, but before he was old enough to leave incubation. Soon after he began his duration as a worker, he found Yi Lu's information. Soon after that, he began hatching a plan. Number 47 looks at the matrix. Are you comfortable? She's gazing out the window again, across to St. Louis. Her eyelids are low, as if she's falling asleep. No, she says, I'm not comfortable at all. She turns to look at him, her head cocked at an odd angle. You're too young to understand, rhombozoid. Her eyes move up and down his body. You're young and fit, thanks to me. You'll never know what it's like to be old, to feel pain. He coughs into his hand, the same cough he's practiced downstairs when he's near the hybrid. Yes, matrix. Increase my pain control, she says. We can deal with complications later. But final harvest preparations are underway, Matris. Add more control to the mix. I'll see what I can do. He passes his hand across the wall screen and presses a few numbers. Please relax now. It's not good to trouble yourself before the procedure. I can't relax. I'm dying. Her milky eyes stare at him. No, number 47 has no witty comebacks. She is dying. I'll tell you a story, she finally whispers. He adjusts her tubing as her voice begins. 
Once, she says, a lock of greasy black hair falling across her left eye. Once, there was a little girl named Melda. She had a father and a mother and a tree she could visit in the river bottom. The old woman's hand shakes and flops in her lap. Number 47 adjusts her cushions, pretending he's never heard the story before. She grew up into a beautiful princess and had a baby with her handsome prince. She rattles, takes a breath, takes another, and then they lived in the tree together where no one could find them. Only parts of the story are true. Yes, she had a mother and father. Yes, she discovered a new species of tree, and yes, she had a lover. But the baby, it was deformed, just like all the other babies born during the disasters. It died like all the other babies died. Antonio, her lover, was a migrant worker. She would have lost her inheritance if her parents ever found out. Thanks.